Today, it's the simple things in life that I miss. The sound of fans singing in unison. The occasional good chirp from a diehard fan. Hey, bro! That waterfront grill gave me a burnt chicken sandwich! I want my money back! The music blurring so loud that I can't even hear what you're saying. The beer vendors? Ice cold beer! Yeah, I miss them. No matter how you look at it, sports brings us together. Whether your club is in a relegation battle or they're competing for a championship, the energy in a stadium or arena can change the momentum of a game. We have begun to see some leagues around the world allow fans, but in a minimal capacity and with strict safety protocols. Many leagues are choosing to play within their bubbles or compete in empty stadiums. But when we are welcomed back to our beloved sports teams, what will our new experience look like? Daniel Putterman is the CEO of Cogniz, a health response platform that tracks fevers from a distance. And Ryan Sickman is the global director of sports at Gensler, a global design and architecture firm. Daniel and Ryan join us on the Sports on Pause podcast to discuss what our new sports experience might look like when we're welcomed back to watch our favorite team. And we are now joined by Ryan Sickman, the global director of sports for Gensler. And as we're trying to return to sports, Ryan, what are some of the things that your clients are wanting to know and are looking for guidance around in terms of returning to play right now? I would say first and foremost, our clients are, are looking for safety. And I would say, you know, in the professional sporting world and even in the intercollegiate sporting world, that safety starts around the players. You're seeing some challenges in college uh, of that initial safety uh, of getting some of the players back into the training facilities and, and understanding the implications of COVID and on their staffs and on their players. Um, so I think we're going to continue to evaluate that as we move forward. But like I said, every conversation is starting with safety first. Ryan, uh, how do you get a stadium ready for COVID-19? <laughs> for better or for worse, we haven't actually had to, to do that yet. Um, so there's a lot of people having a lot of conversations um, about exactly that question. You know, we are on a daily basis updating the guidelines, the protocols associated with getting a stadium ready. Uh, it starts with cleanliness, to be honest. You know, and this actually, this was not a something that is surprising to anybody, but started, you know, for me on one of the very last days of normalcy back in March for myself is... I had to make one last trip before we sort of locked everything down and you get on a plane and you're sort of a little bit uneasy about that situation, knowing everything that's going on. And, and I'll tell you what, I got on that plane, it was the cleanest airplane I've ever been on in my entire life. And it was in that moment that I sort of, it clicked for me and I said, you know what, cleanliness and sanitization is going to be, it's not even going to be an expectation anymore. It's going to be 
a demand. The public is going to want to see this. They're going to want to visually see people cleaning a stadium. They're going to want to have proof that it has been certified as being clean and sanitized. And that's where you start to see a lot of these initiatives from these global operators like an OVG, like a, uh, an ASM Global, coming up with guidelines associated with the cleanliness and the sanitization of these venues. So that's first and foremost. And then we start to evaluate sort of the ongoing opening guidelines. And everybody's going to be a little bit different. Uh, look, there is no set standard. No one's going to have a rule book to follow uh, in this regard. It's never been done before. And so it's a combination of operational protocols that make sense. It's a combination of listening to the local jurisdictions, whether that be city, county, governors, if federal guidelines are ever reconciled for this situation. In the industry, look, we'd, we'd be beside ourselves if we hadn't already started to run some scenarios for occupancy at a social distanced seating bowl, at a social distanced um, concourse. And the highest we're really getting abiding by CDC, current CDC guidelines is about 35% occupancy. And that's super uh, customizing the seating bowl with, you know, groups of six, four, two, one to try to maximize, you know, the amount of seats that we can use in the seating bowl. Not to say that that's the right thing to do, but, you know, at a 35% occupancy, that's about as high as we're going to get under CDC guidelines. With that being said, there are a lot of people that are looking for a more standardized approach to this. How do we make the season ticket policy? How do we make the ticketing policy a little bit easier on everybody? You know, do we just block off the entire seating bowl in groups of four and say, look, if you're going to come this year, you got to buy four tickets and here are your options for locations, groups of four only, and it makes it super easy to lay out the seating bowl. In those instances, it's going to be less of an occupancy. You're going to be in your low 20 percents. You know, we're starting to, to see these things play out uh, in the overall evaluations, but the reality is, is that everybody's going to come back at a different time and everybody's going to come back under different guidelines and those guidelines are changing on a daily basis. And so it's going to be one of those live things. Um, we still don't know how people are going to react to. Um, so I think we're going to have to wait and see how people react to being in that venue too, because we're going to learn a lot that first week as far as people's comfortableness what do they raise an eyebrow at? What, what are they okay with doing? What worked? What didn't work? Because uh, like I said before, there, there really is no set guidelines yet. So what I find fascinating about your business, which now I'm sure is in much higher demand than it was previously, is the sustained demand given you need to find solutions for different problems. Right now, it's obviously returning to play and opening up facilities and, and starting seasons with, with no fans. Eventually there's going to be solutions with fans, but then also there's a piece in terms of reimagining the sporting experience, reimagining the business experience. How do you layer that process and provide solutions in a scenario where all different types of leagues and teams are looking for different types of guidance on the same issue. The reality is, is that there is no, similar to sort of our response to COVID, there is no set guidebook to this. There are industry practices that guide us in our architectural practice of what works for a stadium, what doesn't work for a stadium from a technical standpoint. But the reality is, is that uh, Gensler, we try to do things a little bit different than our peers in the industry in that, Everything we design is around the human experience. And when you really think about that, okay, the human experience for a soccer fan in Los Angeles and a hockey fan in Toronto are two completely different scenarios. There are some similarities. There are some crossovers with respect to the, the experience, but those are two very different demographic people. Those are two very different 
probably socioeconomic levels. Those are two potentially two very different groups of people that we're trying to create an experience around for a different sporting event. And so what we've tried to do is, is really not create a standardized guide, can create a standardized approach to stadiums. We really want them to try to be rooted in their home and in their place and for their people. Because we have that approach sort of from day one, when we get presented with opportunities like this, you know, in situations like this with respect to, to what we're dealing with COVID right now and, and what we will probably have to deal with a couple of years from now when something else comes up, is the ability to react to unique situations in a truly customized approach. You know, even in now the conversations we're having with our clients, say in Texas and the clients that we're having here, say, in, in, I live in Washington, D.C., are two very different conversations. You know, in Texas, they've been granted the ability to have the events. And so they're planning full on to have those events here in D.C. You know, our clients, you know, we, we do a lot of work with the arena here for the NBA and the NHL over the years. And neither of those teams are coming back to play in that venue this year. So that conversation is a more long term thought process around the reimagining of the experience when they do get fans back, you know, which might be next season. And so we start to think more long-term, okay, is that re-entering of the fans with COVID present, with a vaccine present, with masks present, with social distancing present, all those questions are still very much up in the air, but the technology overlay on this is where it's going to go next too. Thinking through what mobile applications, what integration of technology, what abilities and reporting aspects of the venue could we start to integrate into that overall experience? moving forward, I think that's where you're going to start to see that reimagined future. And we're only going to really know what works once people start to come back and see these things in action. And then we'll be able to react and see, okay, that technology's worked. That's one that people are going to adopt. That's one that they're going to refute. We'll be able to react once we really see them back. This is a bit of a philosophical question, but you know, it strikes me from everything you just said that the education of fans is really going to be where the rubber meets the road and are people willing to change their behaviors, which have been learned behaviors for, you know, in some <laughs> cases, decades. I mean, on a real philosophical level, do you think behaviors can be changed? And if so, how proactive do these sports organizations, sports franchises have to be in letting fans know that there's a new normal? That's really interesting in, in that I think that we have shown a propensity as fans, because I'm a fan as well as being a professional in the industry, to adapt. You know, we adapt as fans, we adapt as humans to different situations. Look at the last thing that our industry and the architecture really had to adjust to was sort of the post 9-11 world. You think about security protocols that got put in place in all these mass assembly venues. Think about the security protocols that got put in place at airports. You know, that first week or two after 9-11, be a little, uh, a little hesitant going through security, you know, you're sort of a little bit more on edge and to be expected. But the reality is, is that prior to COVID, you know, becoming part of our everyday lives, you know, you walk through an airport, I did it, you know, in early March, late February, and a security alarm goes off, a metal detector goes off, you didn't even think twice about it. You know, it became such an integral part of that, that experience that you just accepted, and you moved on. I think we will see that you know, to a certain extent with regards to the things that need to become more permanent. And I say need to, because we don't know yet what is going to be permanent. You know, do we do health screenings as part of the entry sequence into these venues when we do reopen them? The aspect right now is that I think generally speaking in across the industry, 
the human perception that you are doing it and that you are at least checking whether it has a result or not is something people I think are expecting. I do think that while we can change as humans, there is some resistance there too. And so I think the teams should be looking at this in a way rather than do we have to change our fans' behavior? No, but I think that they should be looking at it in a way that says, if our fans' behavior begins to change, how do we react to that? Because a lot of the goodness that comes in sports, a lot of the traditions that have come in sports, a lot of the atmosphere that's created in a sporting event venue wasn't programmed. It happens organically. You know, in our world, we just, we opened the Los Angeles Football Club's MLS stadium a couple of years ago. And in that conversation and designing the fan supporters group of that building and that venue, we asked them, what do you want as the fans? What are the types of things that you want integrated into here for you? And we allowed them to help cultivate that experience. I think in the younger generations of folks right now and of fans and, and generations to come, co-creation is going to be vital to the success of those experiences. People are way more susceptible to adapting and believing and buying into something that they helped co-create rather than be force-fed something. So I think that's really where the teams need to be going. I assume it's a good time to be investing in touchless technology. How big will that sort of technology play in the future of live sporting experiences? I wouldn't stop at touchless, to be honest. You're going to go even a step further. You're going to go into facial recognition. You're going to go into motion capture. You're going to go into gait analysis and understanding the, the movement of people's bodies. You're going to go into uh, ocular perception uh, evaluations where you could actually control the video display of, of something in front of you, say a menu or a map with the movement of your retinas and your eyes, where that, that machine can actually track what you're looking at and identify what you're clicking on just simply by your eyes and maybe blinking as the activation device. That's out there. It exists. I think you're going to see it become much, much more prevalent. But we've been having a lot of conversations about the technology that's out there. How can it be integrated? Is this something that people would use, would experience, would like to experience? I think you're going to see sort of a, you know, a renaissance of technological innovation as it relates to our venues over the course of the next two, three, five years, even 10 for some of the things that, that are you know, going to be a little bit more investing. But I think you're going to see a change. I think you're going to see a viable change. And I wouldn't just, I wouldn't just limit it to that, those types of touchless interactions like contactless payments and ticketless entry and those types of things. It's going to go way, way beyond that. Well, I don't love the fact that your business is booming because part of the reason is we're in a global pandemic, but I do love the fact that your business exists so that when sports returns, we all can feel safe participating in it. Thank you for participating in this conversation. You bet. Absolutely. I wouldn't go so far as to say business is booming, but we are definitely very active. Uh, there are things coming down the pipeline. Uh, the good news is that people have not stopped building. And so those experiences are still coming. They're going to get better. I can't wait to get people back in our venues. Believe me, it's something that we cannot wait for the day where we can all sort of return to some semblance of normalcy, cheer, cry, high five others, and be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. Because that's, as humans, that's what we crave. And that's what we sort of have an innate desire to do. And I really, I can't wait for all of us to get back and do it. So thank you. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, guys.
And thanks again to Ryan Sickman for his time. And the thing that I find interesting in terms of what our stadiums might look like moving forward is that it's not just a one-party process, that you're going to need architectural firms like Ryan Sickman's to work with live event producers and healthcare platforms like ones owned by our next guest, Daniel Putterman, the CEO of Cogniz, to find a holistic situation that works in every market and in every arena. Having said that, why don't we find out what Daniel Putterman has been up to? So Daniel Putterman is the CEO of Cogniz. Daniel, thanks for joining us. And before we really get into it, can you break down the technology and how it works? Well, yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. The the tech starts really at the entrance of a venue where we're taking people's temperature in real time. And that can be a, a crowd of people moving at a regular speed. So the, the whole point is to, to get back to a feeling of normal while still taking the, the precautions that we need to. And then from there, it gets actually into the venue, helping out with uh, social distancing. And if you know someone does present with an illness, internal contact tracing so that we can decide what to do with that venue. Daniel, who do you envision is your market for this? You know, it's interesting. So the world ran and they, they bought these handheld cameras. And it, it, it wasn't just food processors, it's manufacturers, it's office buildings, it's retail stores. And we're realizing that that is going to perpetuate two things. One is kind of this hazmat scene of, you know, single file line, getting your temperature taken with a gun, which is not a, not a great way to enter any kind of building or facility. Um, and then secondly, those guns don't work because your, your skin temperature gets modified by the outdoor environment. If you, you touch your face on a cold day, your skin's cold, right? And so if you aren't factoring that in as the operator of a gun, you're taking the wrong temperature all day long. We, we fix that with artificial intelligence. So the short answer is everyone. I mean, I think that the temperature screening, like after 9-11, where no, no airport was the same, no security screen was the same. I, I think it's the same for the pandemic, that this is going to be a mandatory screen for the long term. So the real question is in terms of accuracy, even if you're getting body temperature, does that actually correlate to you being ill? Does body temperature change whether or not you're pregnant or whether or not you got a lot of sleep last night? How accurate are these readings? So two things. I mean, it's, it's a very fair question. And, and there's a couple ways of answering it. I mean, one is I see people stating accuracy. They say, well, we're accurate to, I mean, let's pick a number, 0.3 degrees Celsius. And you say, hmm, okay, maybe the, the tech is that accurate in terms of reading your skin. But if your skin is able to vary by seven degrees during the day, and your gun is not doing anything about that, then what's an accuracy rating, right? And then I guess, you know, we can talk about other conditions, for example, um, you know, being pregnant, uh, coming after a, a fast run, jogging and going back to an office building. But I think the first thing we have to do is we have to account for the environmental factors so that we know what we're looking at is representative of that, that person's actual normalized temperature. And then from there, I mean, I suppose in a worst case situation, you could have one or two false positives. I mean, ideally, we're trying to have no false positives. But if that's, you know, at the expense of finding sick people, that's probably a very low cost to pay, you know, given what the technology can provide for us as a screening device. You mentioned that you think this is going to be commonplace regarding a return to play. Not that I necessarily want to push back on it, but... So let me posit something, and we'd be curious to your response. 
it's very hard, I think, to change the American public's behavior on things. And I think particularly when it comes to uh, sporting events or concerts, to me, that feels actually like a harder change than even security at an airport, where I think there's at least a presumption among people that, okay, I understand to board a, a plane, there has to be this safety check. Why are you confident that people who pay their discretionary income to attend a sporting event or attend a concert would be willing to go through these procedures when there, I think, are still so many people in the American public who don't even necessarily believe how their own potential for getting this virus, depending on where they live, their POV, their geography? Let's unpack it a bit. And by the way, I personally had a very hard time, even though I'm a huge supporter of the security measures at airports after 9-11. I mean, I remember because I, I travel a lot or I used to travel a lot. And I remember I remember the, that, the, that first couple of months of that new normal. And this is before, you know, TSA pre and some of the new entry options. It was rough. It was it was a tough pill to swallow. But, you know, what happens is we then we had to reframe the situation and say, oh, gosh, I get it by going through these protective measures. I'm keeping me and my family safe. You know, with respect to the pandemic, so we've got another stock market correction today, a very significant one, because investors have recognized that we're in the middle of a second wave of the pandemic now. And um, the states that are, you know, I mean, I'll just say it, there, there are states out there, you, you know who they are, that have reopened in a way that's irresponsible. And it's not just in the U.S. I mean, I, I, can, I heard a, a story the other day about a, a, a hair salon in Warsaw in Poland where because they've opened up, they say they're they're going after the the Swedish model, which I think even the Swedes didn't end up pursuing. Regardless, a single hairdresser infected sixty people, sixty clients during a five day period, and so I think that education process is happening in real time. And what I would say is, like for me, I want to know that a stadium or some event venue is protecting me before I go in there. I mean, I want to know what they're doing in order for me to spend my hard-earned discretionary income and be willing to go back into a venue. So I think there are really two sides to the equation. So let's talk in terms of in practice right now. Are there large venues, sporting arenas that are using the product right now are going to be in the near future? We're in large places in general. I mean, massive warehouses and distribution centers to start, but you know, representing millions of square feet. We're in a whole series of, of uh, studio lots down in Hollywood. Um, so we're used to protecting large environments. And, you know, we're now setting our our sites on um, certainly, you know, I think the whole area of ve- venues, it's, it's sort of, you know, re-entry, as you know, into stadiums, the music venues, et cetera. And so that's the one that's pushed off to the distance. No one really knows when it's all going to come back. And so I think, you know, anything that we can do to give the public and also the venue owners and performers the confidence that you know we're adding a, a level of safety that will allow us to reopen or re-enter, I think is pretty important. So we're focusing on venues, we're focusing on transportation hubs, so that's new for us, airports, um, as an example, because the tech uniquely works both in an indoor environment and an outdoor environment. So we're, we're comfortable in both spaces. Daniel, I know you've heard... Uh or you've had this question before, it's certainly going to come up again. And that's the question of privacy and that there are certainly people I would imagine both in the public health space as, as well as those who, um, 
sort of just feel a certain way about their own inalienable rights, that they don't like the idea of some kind of AI or software tracking them inside a stadium or tracking them uh, regarding temperature. And they certainly worry about the prospect of whatever that data is uh, to be shared for whatever means possible. What do you say to those who um, really have some serious concerns when it comes to the privacy of this? Yeah, I mean... Unfortunately, there have been some bad actors in the space, specifically around facial recognition. So, you know, you saw Amazon's recent move with recognition. They're, they're shutting that down to for law enforcement use for the next year. And, you know, I, I just think there's one element, which is taking a temperature against an unknown, unnamed, anonymous person to find out if that human being is sick, protecting the venue and the people that are attending the venue. And there's another to store that information, share that information, and track with that information. And certainly we're supporters of the former and not of the latter. You know, our system is designed to work in a private environment. You know, it's really designed to alert and get a hold of the right people if an anomalous situation presents. So in the world of cognizant, an anomaly would be either a security breach of some kind um, or a health risk. And so, you know, I think that certainly if someone doesn't want to have their temperature taken, they can always not get their temperature taken. It doesn't mean that they should be allowed to put the facility at risk. But, you know, with respect to privacy, I think, yeah, I think people should know what the policy of that given venue is with respect to that data. That, that's a very fair question. The question from the employer side, who staffs this? How does it work? How is the information taken and then passed to decision makers? Yeah. Well, from what I'm learning, and I, I'm far from being an expert, but I, I, sir, I, I talk to a lot of people, my team talks to a lot of people all, all day. The current protocol is we are pushing the single file line gun situation that's happening now. We're putting Cognizant as a pre-screening device. And in the pandemic, there's typically someone around to do a, a secondary check if someone screens high. So the idea is that, you know, we pre-screen, we, we get some flow moving, we get some people into a building instead of, you know, maybe two, maybe two hours if you follow CDC guidelines, and, you know, we, we significantly shorten that. But right now, I think the protocol that I'm seeing most often is there's someone standing by. It's, it's oftentimes a security personnel, right? Because they just have to be able to take a secondary temp using a digital thermometer and then decide um, whether they're gonna let that person enter the building or not. What I see moving down is, you know, the risk is what's happening in, in our country right now, which is we just, we go from closed to open. It's, it's like a switch. And, and I think we got to look at this as like, like, like from a light switch, it needs to be a light dimmer, right? So we need more of a gradual reopening. And that's the only way we're going to keep this at bay. And so in that context, you could imagine a year later where the uh, given facility is still temperature screening, but maybe there's not a security guard near each door. Maybe there's one person handling three doors and if someone alerts, then they get eyes on that person and they take a temperature. So I think it's an evolving protocol. And, you know, certainly we need some tech to, to be able to facilitate that. Well, I certainly am rooting for you and I'm hoping to see your technology or technology like it in a lot of arenas and stadiums, because that means that one, teams and leagues are taking this serious, but two, that fans like me are coming back into the stadium. So all the best, good luck, and thank you for explaining how the tech works. Thank you so much.
now we head to our last word segment where we offer you guys some things to read or watch or listen to regarding the nexus of COVID-19 in sports. And Donovan, my uh, recommendation is uh, maybe a little untraditional, and that's Hard Knocks, the long-running, award-winning HBO series that focuses on NFL training camps. And the first episode, uh, and this will be a theme throughout, was really fascinating because it focused on protocols and medical and showed NFL players getting their COVID tests, including swabs up their nose and just how the different players on the Rams and Chargers, who are the teams for Hard Knocks, reacted to it. A really kind of fascinating look at this stuff. And having talked to um, the supervising producer of the show, Ken Rogers, he looks at it as a historical record of how an American workplace is getting back to some state of normalcy amid COVID-19. So if you can watch Hard Knocks this year, it's not just going to be about two football teams, but it's really going to be about an American workplace uh, navigating COVID-19 protocols and probably never be another behind the scenes NFL one like this. So that's my recommendation this week, Donovan, is to check out Hard Knocks if you can. I love Hard Knocks. And, you know, as a university student, we would sit around and watch episode after episode as the NFL Network often shows old seasons. The only real difference would be types of cleats, types of gloves. You're right. This one is going to be a historical marker on how much things are different in the NFL, in our world, due to COVID-19. We'll see how long they'll be different for. There's a piece in Bloomberg Business Week. It's actually with Bill Gates, who I find super fascinating. The Microsoft co-founder who has personally steered $350 million towards coronavirus projects. He talks to uh, two authors, Dina Bass and Candy Cheng, about the vaccine deniers out there, the people who um, have some conspiracy theories around 5G. But most importantly for most people, when can we realistically expect a vaccine? And he's cautioned that it probably won't be in 2020, looking to many options in 2021, but go and give it a read. Lots of information and insight from a guy in Bill Gates who's been talking about this topic for a long, long time. We're not sure how long we're going to be talking about it for, but we appreciate you continuing to listen and to let us know uh, your thoughts about the episodes via social media and our only thoughts, this is a service for you. So continue to take the information and apply it to your lives and continue to take care of yourself and others.